Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I'm going back to online learning this week. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I'm starting month six of Work From Home. Professional development requires ongoing dialogue and reflection. So lean in as we spend our Saturdays discussing education research and drinking beer. Today we are drinking Manhattan Social Club Ale from the Boulevard Brewing Company. I gotta say, my wife was deeply envious when she saw this thing in our fridge. It is... It looks beautiful. It's got a sweet little smell to it. Especially, I'm really excited because, you know, I come to appreciate as we do this show more and more uh, that I love stouts, but I also really like dark ales. And this is this is an, a Manhattan-inspired ale, which I'm pretty excited to try. 12.5%, buddy. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's what I'm smelling, that sweetness. That's what I'm smelling. uh there we go uh so what are we doing today officiant science communication has been turned upside down by the explosion of popularity of social media platforms we read a reconceptualization of nature of science education for the social media age what is our job as teachers of any content area to prepare our students to be responsible consumers of science as citizens Later, we turn to the role of a person's self-concept in shaping how they interpret information and engage in learning. How much of our students' self-concept can we influence as teachers, and what can we do to help students see themselves as successful learners? Let's get started. For our first segment, we're going to discuss reconceptualizing nature of science education in the age of social media. This is written by Deepmar Hadaki and Douglas Alchin and published in science education 2020 and it's funny because i usually start by saying that i cued this paper because but i didn't actually cue this paper this was a uh audience uh recommendation thank you for pointing us uh, in this direction mr coulter i was uh i was actually surprised when i first opened up this paper and started reading it uh, pleasantly uh because i've actually read other publications by uh, this Alchin fellow on the nature of science. Uh, he was a, a he was a significant. I had some significant required reading in my graduate program uh, by this guy. So to see him again uh, in in the future uh, was kind of nice. Kind of nice. We've done technology episodes in the past. You know, we read a whole paper and we're like, "Yep, read it on paper." And we're like, "That we just read a twenty-five page article to make one sentence of a statement." And we're just going to, so, uh, so I was a little curious about what, what was going to come out of this. Um, I was a little curious, but I, t- I took furious notes. Like I actually ran out of space in my notes section um, as I was reading through their, reading through their, their argument. And to me, it really, um, their analysis boiled down to identifying the role in communication and dissemination of uh, scientific information and findings um, associated with people who do science, who they, you know, they usually refer to as experts, um, people who mediate communication. So you might think of like journalist institutions or bloggers or magazines or whomever is in charge of professionally and consistently um, taking what experts make and making it available for the layperson, And then, uh, and then just consumer 
consumers is what they said, consumers of scientific information, which uh, in my head, I sort of rewrote that to just be citizens, right? Because it was the broadest application of we all use science every day. So citizens. I did the exact same translation from consumers to citizens in my notes as well, uh, that it's uh, the the key it's kind of like they're they, what they really are doing in this paper is saying that we should reconceptualize our nature of science not just to be the processes of science and the social influences on science but then further extend uh understanding science not just in its generation of new scientific knowledge but also in how that knowledge is made accessible and usable by the general population. Let's let's also add let's also add a discussion of the accessibility and utility of that information and how it changes in the public sphere. Uh, and I thought that that was uh, that's good uh, because it has significant implications for the modern world. Uh, and and uh, that aspect of how science has been used in uh, and accepted and received in the public space is different now than it was perhaps. 30 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago. So since we talk about scientific practices improving over time, we have to also talk about other aspects of science that are affected by time. Uh, and the public perception of scientific knowledge is one of those aspects. So I really appreciated that. And nature of science comes with instruction, right? We, we, we want to help students come to understand and appreciate the nature of science. And that includes the doing and also the interpreting of. Uh, and so the... They're arguing that in the social media age, that's my, that's, those are my words, but with the emergence of social media and the dissemination of information and misinformation on social media platforms and on the internet more generally, that we need to rethink what nature of science instruction looks like and what our burdens, what our responsibilities are associated with that instruction, given the new ways that, that science is being communicated or discussed um, on these platforms. I really like the the notion of thinking with a larger a broader historian's lens on this topic um i felt like the authors were really focused on just the most contemporary history this shift from pre-social media to post-social media um but i think it's it's instructive to kind of get some perspective on how other major communication technology shifts or developments uh, were received and how they impacted the discussion of science so in terms of those communication technology um disruptions in relationship to science in the past has been the uh the consistent role of what they refer to as the gatekeepers of scientific information that would be the link between the uh scientific community which is operating with within their own uh communication practices and then the general public which is uh for the most part outside of uh, of those communication practices and so the gatekeepers are this link uh they they identified three significant roles that the gatekeepers play uh the gatekeepers um give scientific knowledge relevance intelligibility and reliability uh, as in relevance as in they determine which of all of the scientific knowledge that is being generated is actually going to potentially inform um, behavioral decisions of citizenry they're going to help translate it so that the uh, um, 
the citizenry can understand it in terms that aren't specialized jargon. And uh, they are going to help vet the scientific knowledge sources by understanding how science uh, polices itself and then recognizing which of those sources of information are surviving that internal scientific um, justification uh, and and uh, uh, self-check so that by understanding that process, they can filter out the information within the scientific community that is not surviving that process and and, and provide that for the citizenry. They discussed the the current communication paradigm. Instead of being a one source to many source paradigm, it is a many source to many source paradigm with the absence of a central authority figure whose uh, reliability and trustworthiness can be consistently judged. Uh, and so the modern paradigm is dramatically different than prior communication disruption events. There are costs and benefits. And some of them they don't really discuss in this paper, but I think is important is gatekeeping in this paper. The authors treat it, I'm going to say entirely as a positive and it is not entirely positive. So I think that it's, it is incumbent upon us to recognize our position and to recognize the costs of gatekeeping. Um, historically and now, uh, because yes, gatekeepers do vet, and I, we're we're not we're not the Times, we're not CNN, we're not we're not C-SPAN, but we are mediators. Like that is what the show is. The show is reading papers and discussing them in the context of practitioners. So and so we get to decide what's important. We get to decide what's. Um, what has impact or what even passes our vetting process. And so, yes, we can weed out some things that are, that are flawed or, or biased or fundamentally problematic, but we also carry with that our biases. And historically, if you look at how gatekeeping has occurred within science or even within, you know, academia broad, broadly, within literature, within history, like within all of our subjects. How has gatekeeping gone historically? Well, it has certainly improved the quality to some degree, even substantially, but it has also excluded people. And it's excluded people along societal lines. And that's not always good. That, that has oppressed some people. That has excluded other ways of knowing. That has excluded, like, that has excluded other traditions or even other cultural perspectives. Which... I have I have absolutely no quandaries with any of of that position. Gatekeeping can and should be improved. Is what I take from that is that more inclusive gatekeeping journalist voice acknowledgement practices are necessary. Uh, I think generally in this paper and generally in just broadly gets discussed like it's this platform where anybody can post anything, but it doesn't have to be. So to suggest that there is no central authority that could control or vet or um, or otherwise gatekeep to use this vocabulary is actually is wrong and is to is to overlook some of the responsibility of platforms like Facebook and Twitter that they they've abdicated that responsibility so far they've more or less thrown their hands up and saying said we won't but that's different from saying we can't and so I wonder if this isn't one of those moments where we've been headed this direction and now we have this disruption. And so we have a great increase in the voices that can be heard. I don't think tamping down the misinformation is actually the way to solve this problem, nor do I think that it was the perspective of the authors to tamp down the misinformation. Um, I think that they 
resigned. I think the authors resigned themselves to a future uh, in the social media space where there won't be um, central authority gatekeepers. So I think one of the, the complications is the – and they did discuss that the individual psychological um, impact experiences one has with the way social media has been crafted to operate is one that um, systemically and intentionally uh, promotes confirmation bias, promotes um, uh, uh, in-group, out-group identity associations with uh, scientific judgments and promotes um, a term that I hadn't ever heard before what was it? Um, the spiral of silence, where uh, an individual who uh, may dissent with a popular opinion chooses not to communicate with it because it would create a division and identity between them and a, and a prior associated in-group. And so those phenomena, those, those psychological phenomena would uh, are occurring with information distribution authorities that attempt to craft themselves within the social media spaces. So the problem is that even the social media science gatekeeping authorities are operating within this system crafted to exploit these psychological tendencies in humans. And so, the, and so the nature of this paper is really about if we, if we accept that this is the landscape into which our graduating citizens are going to emerge, what's our responsibility as instructors to prepare them to navigate that as responsible citizens? Uh, and, and they start from even the broadest question of like, who's problem is this right like this this is a nature of science question so is this a science teacher's problem but this is this is media so is this a comms teacher's problem or is this like a, a literature english problem because this is really about like critical readings of texts and analysis of author author motives and author biases or like is this social science and history because this is something about like our society and societal context like whose problem is this it's everybody's problem I just my my pithy answer is that it is everybody's problem. I mean, and so, but uh, you've worked in a school long enough to know if the principal says everybody needs to teach this, who's going to end up teaching it, Lawrence? Uh, the people that agree with the principal's vision, which I think will be which which I think would be fragmented and inconsistent, and so you'd have some some students getting it four times, some students getting it not at all. And so I think from a from a policy standpoint, I don't think I'm not arguing we need an answer, right? I'm not arguing that like it's science here's problem, but the, I think that we should recognize that whatever I teach, it is my problem. Uh, this is I just can't let it go. Um, we've read enough papers to know that the leadership position should be asking and polling and taking the temperature of the staff and their faculty to understand what the collective priorities of their faculty are and then positioning themselves to be a champion of those particular priorities. Uh, so when the staff cares about media literacy in the students, then the principal should empower, should avail themselves to empower that particular directive. But 
But even that's not actually what it has to look like. What it looks like is what does the staff care about? And I've got a meaningful contingent who wants to really do problem-based learning in a way that's never happened before. And so I avail myself of the next three faculty meetings to demonstrate media literacy in how I show which materials we consider for what's effective in problem-based learning and how lessons could approach that with an integrated approach to this nature of nature of science in society, which is the updated vocabulary that they use so that they can see it being done in an effective way within the context of what they care about so that eventually somebody says hey why are you doing it this way and then i can share here's how you solve your problem by integrating this nature of science and society approach to a literacy perspective like that's really what it is yeah you're right that's it but uh the last 90 seconds don't need to be in this paper because uh, we already wrote that one. Um, right. <laughs> uh, so where are we for real? Well, they're saying that the scientific institutions are becoming mediators. So you've got the scientists like Joe Schme Schmeckel and then American Academy of Sciences. And then that academy says, okay, we're going to start mediating some of this to the citizens. You and I have been on opposite sides of this in the past when you were talking about making accessible to general public pre-peer-reviewed published manuscripts. What it sounds like to me is that you're advocating that scientists themselves have a responsibility to directly communicate to citizen consumers their uh, work. And the this paper says that it turns out that even with a highly committed and maybe a highly effective um, science education experience for all, which we don't have, but assuming that we did, even then the specialization necessary to actually understand the consequences and the science being communicated directly is not really available to most of the people in the community. So if we're looking at like citizen, like hobbyist interest outliers who have spent extra time to understand and access that information, maybe they can seek out that information as packaged directly by scientists. But from a dem democratic perspective, that's not an effective solution to this misinformation problem. Gatekeepers are still going to be necessary to translate that for the vast majority of individuals who do not, frankly, even if they have the interest, don't have the time, uh, don't have the opportunity and don't have the background in order to make that uh, a priority in their lives because they have other things that they need to do in order to function societally. So as educators, we don't really have the power or responsibility to teach scientists to be gatekeepers, but we do have the power and responsibility to teach citizens about gatekeeping. Reconceptualizing nature of science instruction to prepare those citizens to better vet what the new communication landscape is going to be, what skills do they need. And there was a piece of it that really um, struck me not because it was brand new to me necessarily, but it really spoke to something that I that has been important to me and put me in a place to reframe it. Um, because they talked about a distinction between um, instruction to help students engage in inquiry, um, the doing of science, if you will. And I love that. I, I live for putting students in a place to help them engage in inquiry. I really do. that. I'm really passionate about that. But that is not the same thing as preparing them to consume critically the science of others. 
it's meaningfully different in a lot of ways. And so I can very much see myself in a classroom five years ago saying, well, we do science all the time. I'm doing this. No, I'm not. And no, I wasn't. And so help putting them in a place to think about, well, who's doing the funding and who's doing the, who's, who's here and what's the expertise that they have, what's the training that they've got and what's the track record they've got of the communication they've done to this point. And all that is really good guidance. And all that is, those are skills that are separate from the ability to engage in science, the way that future professionals might do that. And so I think that that's a, that's a, that's, that's a point that, that changed me that reframed the role of inquiry and how it sits next to the role of nature of science and society instruction. Yeah, I appreciated that kind of uh, that kind of stuff too. Also, I would say that I have had for a long time a very strong presence uh, around the thesis "I hate cell phones." Uh, but what I appreciate about this paper is that helps me uh, imagine a world where I can craft that into something that is a little more holistically useful from a citizen perspective of of my students as they become a future citizens. Like I can I can take. Mr. Woodruff hates cell phones and do something more sophisticated with it uh, in light of this paper's perspective of information analysis, you know, as opposed to Woodruff hates cell phones. Let's talk about the psychology of information dissemination in terms of science and our society. Uh, That's actually, it's the same message, but it's less, I'm a personal weirdo who's out of touch and more, Hey, Let's learn about the world you live in and how you're going to navigate it when you're autonomous citizens, uh, which is just better. That's just just better. The authors discuss a little bit um, some some of the existing attempts to help uh, students or provide material for teachers to support students in navigating this current landscape. And there, we've got some references in the show notes for all of that. Um, and some of that's consistent with what I've done before, right? Like evaluating the credibility of sources. Credibility is a word that I love. I got that from a from an educational anthropologist a few years ago. He talked about the distinction between credibility as a more holistic idea compared to validity and reliability and some of the other words. I love the word credibility. Um, but Thinking about all of the things that go into evaluating the credibility of a source, there's support for that. There's a there's an instance um, uh, a couple of years ago where I was um, had some students doing a bibliography for some research they were conducting, and one of the students um, asked me about you know, a source that they were looking at, and this was a really good moment to talk about like here's what pre here's what preprint print papers are about. Here's why you might use them. Here's their limitations and why you might not use them. Here's what the difference between peer reviewed or refereed. Here's the, like just here's what a regional journal looks like versus a, a national journal or an international journal looks like, and how you might judge the difference between them. But this was an instance where it was a I think it was a Polish journal. It was a regional journal, and so at first blush, you see you see an unfamiliar language, you see a fairly low budget website, and and red flags are up. I'm I'm like I'm not sure whether this is a credible credible source or not. But walking through with the student, like, here's what I'm looking at. Here's what I'm clicking on. Here's what I'm expecting and what I'm not expecting. And it was, it's, it was a fine journal. It was a great journal. It was, it was regional botany in that part of the world. And it was unfamiliar to me and it was unfamiliar to my students, but they were doing good work. And the stuff that they had published was valuable and we cited it. But walking them through that process of vetting the sources is something that we did that with, with, with scholarly work, but that's instruction and guidance that we've got a model for our students, even in K-12 classrooms, even with some of the more casual consumption of material within the context of your larger curriculum. Yeah, I really appreciated um, 
the general they had a little general overview of uh table two um sort of uh, concepts involved in information generation within the scientific community information generation but or mediation basically between the scientific community and the public and then the sort of psychological um circumstances maybe traps situations that a, a someone in the public could experience uh when accessing that information uh i found those that list uh, uh pretty significant and worth uh worth considering uh, and i thought that is, that's probably when i when i uh meditate on this and decide how i might want to craft some of my conversations that i have during the school year i'm going to be looking at table two a lot uh to say where can i fit in a conversation about this or how can i craft an, an experience that illustrates this part of of, of that uh relationship to information document everything for our second segment we read disentangling different sources of stability and change in students academic concepts and integrative data analysis using the starts model uh, this was by uh, Malte Jansen and Oliver Lucky and Alexander Robsch 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 in the Journal of Education Psychology, 2020. I chose this paper because it was about self-concept, and I linked. Uh, I I went and found. So it came up. La- I think it was last month. It came up the information processing model. I went and found my best attempt at citing that. Let's let me see if I can give the nutshell version without going through the entire information processing model. So information is a big word and it can mean a lot of things. It could be the color of the wall painted in the room that you're in, and it could be a complex understanding of the history of democracies starting from ancient Greek through the modern day. There's a lot of information and a lot can be categorized as information. But no matter how you are getting, no no matter how you are, no matter what category or type of information it is, you've got information from outside of you, you've got to sense it first, and it goes to these different checks in your brain, and your brain says, okay, this information, it's here. Uh, is this important? Should I should I think about it, or is this ignorable? And then it goes on to another section of brain and says, hey, should I really ponder this? Does it require like a critical analysis for me to daydream about or, or problem solve, or is it ignorable? And then it goes, hey, is this important enough that we have to actually remember this and use this information later in our life, or can we forget it? And so our brain is asking all these information. And so this is happening to us constantly. And so some information gets to that stage where, yeah, yeah, this is really important. Let's remember this and make this a part of us. And some of it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was useful for a little bit, but we can ignore it because it doesn't really matter anymore. Well, that information that gets stored, like for long-term, repeated, continual use, that kind of gets integrated into our identities. And that is what we're talking about when we call self-concept. Like, I, I consider myself a cellist. So information about music, music theory, technique, sound quality, the, the manufacturing of the instrument, that kind of information is important to me, and I keep it uh, kind of in a higher category of importance and value. And it, it may, it's, I 
I hold that information in a, in a special place in my heart, and it becomes a part of me. But there's other information that I've heard uh, that maybe was useful at the time, but I don't care about it anymore, and I don't remember it, and it's not really a part of me anymore. They sort of they disentangled these couple of ideas of there is a, a static component to our academic self-concept, how we view ourselves and our ability to know things, both generally and within our various disciplines. Uh, and I really appreciate that they clarified that static component uh, might be due to things outside of our control, like genetics. There's there's probably a genetic component to what we can know, but also to things that are outside of our specific controls and structures, like prior learning experiences, like your preschool history. We can control that societally, but my students, their preschool experience has already been had, and I can't control that now. So there's this static component. There's also this, I'm going to say malleable component. That's sort of how I operationalized it. That is that sort of, um, they use the term auto-regressing, which I really like, and I'm going to use that a whole bunch in my future. Um, This idea of, it's something that's more or less stable, but influenceable. And then there's this random component to the measurement that any given day, there's going to be some portion of it that's just dependent on my mood or what I had for breakfast or whatever else has happened that morning. And so they disentangled these three components to try to figure out how much of this self-concept is something that we can influence as instructors, which I think ultimately really matters, um, especially if you accept um, something like this information processing model that I know you and I have discussed many times before. Yes. Um, so the they like the paper was really thick and it was really thick with method, but when we get down to the like the um when we get down to the shoulds, when we get down to the actionable information, um I would say that I don't want to say that it was thin, it's just that wasn't the lengthy parts of the paper. There wasn't a lot to say, but what they did say was I found heartening and reinforcing of the the influence that teachers have and the choices teachers make in both um, providing experiences to their students that scaffold them to success and then providing feedback to students in terms of um, their actual achievement and route to uh, improvement. Uh, That those are the really things that we can change, that we can do to change students' perception of their academic self um providing feedback that is actionable and then opportunities to use that feedback so that they actually have behavioral change so that they can reflect on what they have done is a critical component to illustrating that they can be successful in this in any of these new academic domains that they're they're traversing in All of the things that we think of as feedback that give communication to our students about how and whether they can engage in mathematics or how or whether they can have mastery over language shapes over time their concept of whether they can come to know, whether they can develop competency in our domains. And that's a lot. Like, that's a whole lot. That's great news. Uh, So... I mean that that's the that is that's the thing that's it that's what the paper is saying uh, that's what the paper that's the bit of information that the paper is giving us the takeaway or the should for a practitioner in a classroom is that you should be intentional about how you represent 
what success looks like in your discipline as well as how you invite students to be successful in your discipline and how you scaffold and support students in their attempts to be successful in your discipline. Since not just, not though it is heavily influenced by academic um, performance, because that is itself a type of feedback, other signals that you are sending also contribute to their identity as students of your discipline. So there's a lot more to curate than just grading their papers. And I actually think this is related to our first segment where we think about nature of science and uh, incoming information is some of those biases uh, influences how we receive and retrieve information. So uh, if I think of myself as somebody who only insists that we reject evolution as a truth. And that's something that's been drilled into me as a very young child. And so any idea related to understanding evolution is an affront to my personal identity. The first time I have that information coming in, my self-concept is going to make it very difficult to engage with that information because it's in such deep conflict with so much of the rest of my schema of the world around me and specifically with who I am as a person. So that information is very likely to be not not even assimilated into my into my existing schema, let alone put somewhere where I can retrieve it later. But that self-concept is malleable. So if over time I think of myself, I may be, begin the semester thinking of myself as math is not for me. And so the first time I think about understanding systems of equations, I think, well, this is something I can't understand. And so there might be very little that I can retrieve. But over time, learning within an environment that says math can be for everyone. And I can see lots of people, including people like me, successfully being mathematicians and engaging in mathematic behaviors. This study suggests that my self-concept is remarkably malleable. And so I can come to view myself as a mathematician, and that can shape the kind of information that goes into my long-term storage and the kind of information I expect to be able to retrieve and not just retrieve, but retrieve in ways that are coherent with my identity and being able to retrieve them in ways that are coherent makes it a lot less, um, a lot less difficult to pull back out, which just reinforces those pathways. And so makes it makes me more capable of learning more mathematics. And so all of that is to say, if in August somebody walks into my classroom and says, you know what? I don't read school books. I need to know as an instructor, there's a lot of that perspective that's malleable. And so I need to build a relationship with that student. I need to show them that I'm going to be judicious in the way that I ask them to read books. I'm going to invite them to contribute to the conversation about how we read books and I'm going to do my best over the course of a school year to help them reimagine their self-concept as somebody who says, maybe, maybe I read all sorts of books. Maybe school books that are assigned are school books that have value and not just another box to check. So that by the end of the school year, they're reading books and they're extracting value from those books because their self-concept is one that says, you know what? There's some, there's some value in considering these new perspectives of books that are assigned to me. 
So we're talking a lot about the malleability self-concept and I've believed it in my heart for as long as I've been anything like an educator. Um, and I believe that this is evidence that that's real, but we should remember that these objects are measurement objects. These aren't necessarily things that are in us, right? It's, it's actually very likely it's more complicated than that. And so um, we should talk about reification. That the word is a reification to make something that is uh, measurable, necessarily something that is physically or tangibly real. And that that's, that's a fallacy. That's a mistake. So, Self-concept is definitely real, and it certainly influences how we come to learn and how we come to know things later. But let's not let's not presume or or fallaciously predict that self-concept can be reduced to four numbers because it can't. Uh, it's certainly more complicated than that. What's important is that the feedback that we give and the environment that we create for our students matters and does matter for them long term. We can show students that they can be academically successful. We can show them that they can come to understand math, that they can grow to competency in their verbal skills and lots of other domain specific ideas already. But don't misinterpret this whole segment as be something that self-concept is one thing because it isn't. As I am a cellist, but there's a lot of things that I am that aren't a cellist, that isn't a cellist. Or even, uh, you know, I'm, I've, I've been a bassist for a number of years, and I can't, I can't read music, like I. Ah, oh, yeah, 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 that's good too. And even, even within domains, there's, there's a lot of specificity. One could be an artist, but have a disdain for sculpture yeah i say i say can't read music i i can read other music i can't read bass music <laughs> yeah so uh you know identities are complicated in other words which is uh something that i mean i don't know that we've i don't know if we've ever actually said the phrase identities are complicated but i think that on this show as teachers we rec- we've recognized the importance of under coming to understand student identity and acknowledging it and and so hey classroom story everybody you know so the finding of this paper ultimately that you actually can influence students perspective of self regarding academics i think is something that many of us as teachers have gonna we've got we've held that in our hearts and believed it as something that fuels our interactions with students i think a lot of us have been taking that as some dogma. Uh, and so it's nice to see some like empirical reinforcement of that, that no, you're not just, it's not just a leap of faith. It is a supported statement that yes, you're right. You can influence them. But a little classroom anecdote, uh, we just had our last day of in-person classes last Tuesday. This is we're recording this the Saturday after Thanksgiving. So last Tuesday was our last day of school. And in I, I have quarantine drawers for all paper assignments where I keep them and have them sit for 24 hours because COVID remains viable on, on loose leaf paper for for um for for about uh, 20 hours after after it's been there. Uh, so we put them in the drawer and I grade them later and I was opening my gr- drawer to grade the last in-person paper quizzes we were gonna take over the school year. And in it is an envelope. And I open the envelope and there's a letter inside written by a student 
who and of course i'm having all kinds of like you know uh, uh agency crisis analysis about this school year about how what little we've done about how how what my kids could my kids now can only do a third of what my kids were doing in october of last year and it's 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 basically december now i mean we're at the very very end of november we're gonna have one day of november and then we're gonna be in december so we're we're one we're you know we're three months behind um while being two months ahead and uh it, it i just feel like i've achieved nothing and this student wrote me a letter saying that this is the first science class where she's felt that she's been successful and that she can't even believe how much she actually understands about the stuff that we're talking about and that she's actually liking science for the first time in her life. And so we don't, we may not get them very often, but we get those letters and those letters, they are, they are an accelerant on the passionate fire in our hearts as teachers that we've been holding on to the saying that we are making a difference in students perception of themselves because when they have an academic self-concept that is a growth or effort-oriented perspective that what they they can work for and they can achieve what they work for they can put an effort to work for it they experience greater academic successes so having good classroom experiences to help them um realize their agency is a critically important part of shaping them as students because once they've accepted that they are a student of that content then what you can do in the classroom to teach them that content uh, that that increases exponentially because they will believe that they can go with you wherever you want to go. So getting them to that place should be a fundamental goal because it will unlock lots of opportunities for growth later. Because they'll just go with you. They'll just they'll just in, they they want to invest in the work because they they now like science and they now like the effort and they now uh, believe that they can. Uh, and that belief allows fuels so much potential in those kids, uh, and so it's worth working for, and it's worth spending time for, even when, even when time is at a premium, it's still worth spending time on that. So how was the beer? The beer was amazing. I love this beer. Not only not only is it sweet with alcohol, and I definitely experienced that, but also it's got all the characters of ale that I really like. It's got the lightness that make it easy to drink. It is. With the stiffness of the stout that I really enjoy. There's some fruitiness in there. This tart sweetness. I like it. I can taste... I can taste the... I don't know what I taste. That's the alcohol, my friend. Yeah, man, it smells good, though. <laughs> it sure does. 
as do I. We really appreciate you listening. This has been another month in extraordinary time. What you do matters. Please be safe. Do your best for your students, but take care of yourself. Let us know if there's anything we can listen to or read or consume that might help help you do your job better as we go into, hopefully, the last few months of this engagement before whatever is next comes next. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research and struggle well.